Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bccweb.com. just want to thank you all um, for the many comments after last Sunday morning's two services. Both were slightly different. And uh, um, pastors generally don't like talking about finance. They either love talking about it or don't like talking about it at all. Uh, in my case, we, we tend to, I've found that over the years, we've tended to avoid it um, unless it's been particularly pertinent for any particular reason because we've always trusted God. But the truth is pastors can't move away from the financial issue because it's, it's right at the heart of so many of us in our lives and, and knowing how to be good stewards of our finances is a very important thing. So this morning's um, discussion is biblical testing, biblical testing, and uh, it's a continuation of our Strength and Courage series. Um, there's quite a lot to this service this morning and I want to relax you all. Um, there's no agenda behind this. I want to tell you what I said last week as well for those who weren't here, that this church is amazingly generous. Uh, we looked at Deuteronomy 15 last week, and I don't know if you know this, but Jesus spoke more about the book of Deuteronomy from the Old Testament than any other book that he referred to when he was alive on this earth. It's interesting, isn't it? And uh, so it's important for us to cover some of the things that he covered. And of course, we know that finance was discussed um, ex- quite a lot in the New Testament, and the scriptures we read about it extensively. And there's a reason for it. It's because in life we get caught out by financial matters. And we get caught up and tied up and in knots and all sorts of problems can happen around finances. And the trouble with financial problems, they, they quickly go to the root of our relationships and they quickly destroy us or can pull us down. And uh, we, we looked at some of that last week, but looked at God's provision for generosity. And we looked at the whole subject of the heart. And actually, God, I don't believe God's interested in your money. He's interested in your heart. And the thing is, uh, finances tend to be a kind of key to your heart. Uh, and that's why he talks about it. It's not, it's not at all about money. It says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, isn't it? And what does it say about heaven? The streets are paved with... He doesn't need your money. I'm telling you, he doesn't need it. What he needs is your heart. What he wants is your heart. He always, his plan was always to have relationship. And uh, the, the problem is, that so often we make things about finance, and it's not actually about the finance. It's about our relationship with God. It's just that financial things tend to sit right in the heart of our identities and who we are. So we have to talk about it. But, uh, you know, in, in Matthew 6, 21, this is a great verse. I love it. It says, where your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And often people get this the wrong way around. But actually, if you want your heart to be knitted to something, put your treasure there. That's the choice. You may feel that you know, your heart's not in something. We'll start putting your treasure where your heart needs to be. And you watch how quickly your heart will be there. Don't wait for your heart to define you. Um, define your, control yourself, self-control. You know, it's interesting, talking about where your treasure is. Who, who saw that, that um, news thing about the Hatton Garden uh, robbery, you know, those safe deposit boxes? Did you see the number of people that were in moments at that place? Why? Because a lot of their treasure that was probably undeclared <laughs> was in that building. And they wanted to know when it was coming out, how would you get it out, how can I get it without telling everyone what I put in it? <laughs> you know, all that hidden stuff was in there, undoubtedly. And uh, I should think there was quite a few people behind the scenes chuckling away about the whole event. And for those of us who don't have that volume of treasure, <laughs> it, was, it was quite entertaining, I thought. They ought to make a film about it anyway. Um, 
So this morning we are going to, and the, the topic is um, biblical testing, testing what's in our hearts. Um, and we are going to look at whether or not testing is something that God brings to us as a, as a perspective in our Christian walk. And the answer is it is. And God talks about this subject of tithing. And so we're going to just look at that this morning because I know this, that tithing is an incredible route to blessing in your lives. I know it. And I know that if we talk about it, we're presenting to you the opportunity of discovering God's enormous blessing in your life because tithing is is something that's got a deep spiritual significance and also a practical significance so we're going to look at it this morning and you can make your own minds up no one's telling you you know our church is a generous church Uh, I'm not saying this morning that we are preaching this because um, there's something that we need off you because that's not how it is God provides God is our provider and God is providing through you and you guys are immensely generous like I've said you know this year we've seen some extraordinary giving Um, even this week We've just been amazed, and I can see one or two people nodding in the service, about things that I know have happened this week in the life of the church, where unexpected provision has come in. Why? Because God's already planned to give. And the trouble is we tend to be the people that block his route to giving. Why? Because we're the ones who tend to handle his finances. So, um, so do we have a heart to give? Well, we talk about the subject of testing. How many people have got a child who's in, in exams at the moment? Not many. A few of us. Who's ever sat an exam in their life? Yes. <laughs> yeah, most of you. Who likes sitting exams? Yeah. Nobody. But um, what do we know about exams and testing? They're, they're hard work, aren't they? They're hard work and they're the last thing you want to do when the sun... Why do they always put exams on in the summer? It's always revision around Wimbledon time. <laughs> yeah. It's the worst thing. And those of you who love the fresh air, you know you don't want to be indoors revising. Um, some of you do. That's sad. But anyway... Um, <laughs> I'm not one of those people. I love the outdoors. But um, it's interesting. When we prepare ourselves for an examination, we, pre- we work hard at it. We work at it. You can't just turn up at your exam. I remember I did that a couple of times. I just turned up thinking, well, that will work fine. And then when you get the fail mark, then you know, actually, you can't just turn up at exams. You have a preparation element to, to exams and, and to any sort of tests. And nobody, you get that cold shudder, don't you, when you talk about school tests. But, um, but you know, in a sense, God tests us. And biblical testing is, is a reality. And God tests us when? He tests us every week. And he tests us every month. Because um, he talks about finance in the kingdom of God. And he wants to know what's really in our hearts when we talk about these topics. So it's, um, it's not about a God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New. And we'll explore that this morning. It's not about um, legalism versus grace. In fact, it's quite the opposite, actually. It's a, in fact, grace will put you under more pressure pressure in a funny sort of way when you understand what grace really is. I think often we don't understand grace. I think often we, we, we define grace to be permission to do what we want to do. That's what I think. I think quite often people are very liberal with their definitions of grace. They ignore some of the principles of who God really is and they go straight into permission. And uh, Anyway, let's look at Malachi 3. Let's dive in at the deep end. For those of you who know Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12. Uh, it's interesting that in the New Living, this little piece of scripture is called a call to repentance. Isn't that interesting? And what do we know about the principles of repentance? Repentance is when we turn away from what is wrong and you turn towards God. That's what repentance is. Repentance isn't, isn't saying, oh, I'm really sorry about something. It's actually a changed direction. And so when John the Baptist called people to repentance or Jesus in the New Testament, we talk about repentance. We're talking about a change in direction a change in direction that's really important. And so it's interesting that they talk about this in Malachi that is headed. So verse 6, um, some very, very punchy pieces of scripture here. I am the Lord 
and I do not change. Let's just pause on that. I am the Lord and I do not change. That, that's not a, I am the Lord and I was one thing and I'm going to become something else. That's, I am the Lord and I do not change. And I'm going to skip straight through to verse 7. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me out of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, so there will be enough for food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great, you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all the nations will call you blessed. What's the purpose behind these scriptures? You don't need to answer me. The, the, answer, the answer to that is God wants to bless. He wants relationship and blessing. That's his purpose here. It's all about relationship with us and his intention to bless. All the nations will call you blessed. All the nations will call you blessed. God's plan is never for us to live insular, self-centered, inward-looking lives. And the trouble with financial things, they can make you like that. They can make us like that. We end up becoming penny pinchers or accounting the detail without ever releasing very much. And uh, I remember um, Fred's offering talk last week where, it, you know, that, that illustration of when we hold on to stuff too tightly, we're gripping so tightly to what God has given to us. Firstly, we can't get any more in, but actually the stuff he wants to pour into us is already, it's got nowhere to land. There's, no, there's nowhere to land. It's a great illustration. So when we look at Malachi, it says, verse 6, God does not change. Right? God doesn't change. We're talking about who is God? You know, this morning we, we, we talked about the word holy. Say holy. holy. Who thinks that's a good word, holy? Do you know what that word means? Set apart to God. Did you know that? When we sing holy, you sang it all the way through the service today. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. What an amazing song. It means set apart to God. So a holy nation is a nation that's set apart. And we'll, this is material to this this morning. Um, it says uh, God does not change. He's already perfect in every way. God's not in the process of learning how to be a better God. You know? <laughs> and we're not in the process of trying to teach him how to be a better God either. We're in the process of learning what it is to follow a perfect God. That's, that's, our, that's who we are. But in verse 7 it says, You've cheated me. And how have you cheated me? You've cheated me by withholding your tithes and your offerings. And uh, I see, I think there are many in this church who are incredibly generous, and there are many people who tithe. Uh, in fact, our partnership principles are based on people who commit to tithing. And, uh, and so that's what we do. If you're a life group leader, we expect you to tithe. If you're, if you're a leader in the church, we expect that to be some of your commitment to, to the church. And if you want to be a partner with us, we don't, we're not going to cut corners here. We're, we're going to do what God says, and that's where we stand. Um, so we're not going to take on that issue of cheating. We're not going to do that. Verse 9 says, uh, humanity is under a default curse. In fact, in some scriptures, there's God's curse. Well, how does God curse? Well, the trouble is when we're talking about sin and separation, there is a curse defined by sin and separation. And what God does is he 
bridges the way from sin and separation back to himself. And finance is part of the conversation about being separated from God. It's one of the very material things, and that's why it's in the scriptures. Verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. And what's the storehouse? The storehouse is, the, is a central point. It's where the congregation of the people takes place. If you look all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, you'll see that there's this principle that is repeated time and time again, that the storehouse and the principle of the storehouse right into the New Testament is where the gathering of the, the, the leaders are and where the people are, where they fellowship together. It's not your personal separate identity that you go and create your own little pot that you divvy out from and that beca- that's not a storehouse. The storehouse is where the assembled believers come together and where by God's grace we're able to resource things on a much greater scale. Um, for example, I had a great text from um, uh, an email actually from Jordan and Vesna last night at seven o'clock and they're thrilled to announce that tomorrow their baby daughter just got born. But you know I've been in conversation with Jordan all week. You know his car broke down, his clutch went those guys are living on subsistence in Macedonia. And by God's grace, we are a storehouse for them. We are God's provision for them. And we will be God's provision for many other parts of the world and people in our Bromley borough. There are a number of things that God wants to do in our storehouse to provide for those. There are other churches coming to this church for equipping. You may not realise it, but it's happening. There are, there are people who are not part of our world who are coming to this church to us because they want support or guidance or, or all manner of things from spiritual to practical. The community can see this place as a storehouse. This is a storehouse. Um, you yourself are not a storehouse. The gathering of the people is where the storehouse is. And it says in verse 10 also, it's a very long verse, this verse 10. Um, it says, he says, I'll open the windows of heaven to bless you. Now, I don't subscribe to um, the, the size of the windows, the size of your offering. I don't buy into that. I just think it's a principle of heart. That, God, that when your, your heart does the right thing, God just wants to abundantly bless. And so God does open the windows of heaven. There is a principle behind it. We know in the New Testament that God, heaven opened at the baptism of Jesus. Uh, when when um, at the stoning, the heaven opened of Stephen. Heaven opened. And there are times when, so it's a picture, but it's a real Reality that God wants to pour blessings into situations. We saw it last week, just thinking about it. We talked about new wine, how God poured resource into one point where the gathering of the people were. What was it? That £40,000 that was raised without any offering taking place for that amazing missional move that took place in South Africa and the planting of a school. Um, Extraordinary thing. So I'll pour out my blessing. I will open the windows of heavens. Why? Because I want to bless you. And, uh, And then what does God say? through Malachi, try me, put me to the test. And you may know this already, it's the only place in scripture where God says test me. It's the only place. So God himself says you can test me. You can test me because I want to bless you. I want to bless you. I don't want you to hold back on who you are and who I am because of your wrong understanding. But with that testing, verse 11, he says I will will be part of the blessing in your life. I am that blessing in your life that will produce abundant crops, but not only abundant, but protected. And I remember Clive Pick years ago, over 10 years ago here, it's the one or two things I remember from his time here. He He said something which I'm still chewing over actually. He said if we don't give back to God what belongs to God, it'll go anyway. That you can't hold on to what is God's. God will always have what is God's. It's holy and set apart to him. And if you don't give it to him, it's it his by, by right. Now, I, I've sat on that for years, not, not really explored it much further, but it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Um, but if God is truly God and, and, and we believe he is, 
then, um, then when he says, I'm going to bless you, he's going to bless you. And if he says something is a curse, then it's a curse. There's no, there's no two ways about it. Um, so what's the default? That you're blessed when you bring the tithe back to God, but Malachi warns about this curse for not bringing back a tenth of what we have as provision to ourselves. So that's what the Bible says. Now let's have a look. What is biblical testing? What is biblical testing? James 1 verse 3 says, The testing of your faith um, produces perseverance. In another part of the New Testament it says, The testing of your, your faith produces endurance, so you can run the course, that so you can stand the... So you're able to succeed. So you're able to... Why does God allow these things to happen? James is all about testing. What great joy there is in, in trials and temptations and... Why? Because it's producing a refinement in us so that we know where our real dependency is. It's not on you and your bank account and, and your world as you define it. It's on God the Creator who wants to be your God and he wants us to be his people. That's his plan. It's always been his plan. So if we're talking about what is biblical testing, it's very interesting. I'm going to just throw something at you. Those of you who are numerate, did you know the number 10 in the Bible is very much tied to the, to the idea of testing? The word, number 10 in, in, in biblical scripture often links to the, to the idea of testing. It's very interesting. I noticed it when I was preparing this, this talk that Malachi 3, it's in verse 10 that God says, test me. <laughs> it's in verse... Okay, you, that might be quirky. But how about this? Um, how many plagues were there in Egypt? How many commandments did God give? How many times were the Israelites tested in the wilderness? Ten. You don't have to read your scripture. Um, how many times were Jacob's wages changed when he wanted to get married? Ten. How many days was Daniel tested? Ten. What about in the New Testament? Jesus told the parable of ten servants to invest ten measures of silver. Ten servants, ten measures of silver. Interesting, isn't it? Luke 19, you can look it up. Um, what about the parable of the ten virgins who were tested with having their oil ready? How about that? Ma Matthew 10. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? How about the ten lepers? What was the test there? How many came back? One. Ten lepers. So when you see ten in Scripture, it has a link to this principle of testing. And what does it say in Revelations 2, verse 10? <laughs> it said there'll be ten days of testing on this earth. There's a, there's a principle in the Scriptures of ten being linked to testing. And uh, I'm not saying you get too, too extreme on all, all this. Um, but... But God likes his numbers. <laughs> he, love a, he loves accountants. <laughs> you know, 66 books. And anyway, he does. He knows his numbers. And how many disciples were there with Jesus? Twelve. Well done. It was just a test. <laughs> okay. So, we, so you're getting the idea. Testing is not wrong. It's just what happens. You know, if you want to, to get things right, then you go through times of testing. And... Um, but then some will say, well, hang on, I don't like tithing. No, no, it's not for me. I don't need a tithe. I can think of all sorts of different reasons why I don't need to. I can find things to blame. I can find excuses in my life. I can find all sorts of justification. And you know what? You will, because you'll be looking for them. But what does it say? Someone might say, well, Christians can't be cursed, or Christians can't be affected by what's cursed. Well, that's interesting, because it says in 2 Peter 2.14 that, um, that without Jesus Christ... Uh, the, the lives of men are under a curse, right? So that's the way that the world is. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of curse in the world. Um, does the Bible say you can live any way you want under grace? No, it doesn't. What does it say in Romans 6 verse 12? 
Um, it says um, you become vulnerable. Don't let sin control the way you live. Sin is, of course, uh, the, the creator of the curse in the world. Um, do Christians sin? Yes. And what's our solution to have that sin paid for, washed away? Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2.24. Also for sicknesses and, and, and disease, Jesus paid the price for it. We haven't paid the price for it. God has. God has done it. And if you don't put God in the right place in your life, then you take control of your life. And you can't do it. You can't, you can't be God to yourself. You can't be. God has got to be God to you. Otherwise, you put yourself under the curse that's in this world. That's effectively how to interpret that in modern language. Um, so what do we do? Um, tithing brings blessing. Why, why would you not do it? It brings, it brings an open heaven, it says in the scriptures. Not tithing exposes us to the way of the world, which is cursed. There's no question about it. And we have to deal with that all day long. We have all sorts of evidence of sin in this world that we're dealing with. The second thing is, well, isn't, isn't tithing just under law? And, uh, and some may argue, no, it's, uh, I'm not going to tithe because we're not under law, but we're under grace. That is possibly the worst argument you could ever come up with to defend not tithing, by the way, because, because it just is, and I'll show you why. Um, you know, if something is wrong under the law, does it become right under grace? No. If it's wrong under the law, does it just, be, does it, just because we're under grace, does it make it right? So if, if what God said was wrong in the Old Testament, uh, which is not all the law, by the way, the law is only part of the Old Testament, if God says it was wrong there, does it automatically become right now because of grace? The answer's got to be no. The law shows the moral commands of God. That's what it does. That's what it, the law was given to reveal what sin is, the curse that's in this earth. That's why God gave the law in the first place. It wasn't to control people. It was to reveal the curse of sin in this earth. That's why the law was given. We know that's the, the answer to that. And... Um, and we know, for example, that murder is wrong. And then look at this, Matthew 5, 17 to 19. This is what Jesus said. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. By the way, Malachi is a prophet. And what we read in Malachi 3 is the, one of the writings of the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the, writing of the pro- writings of the prophets. No, I came to abolish their purpose. Sorry, accomplish. <laughs> That's a Freudian. I came to accomplish their purpose. No, I came to accomplish. Verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the slightest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus brought the whole profile of God's grace, even though grace existed in the Old Testament. But he is saying there's a fulfilment of the law that is brought to completion through grace. And how is that possible? Because it doesn't eradicate God's character. It doesn't eradicate um, God's moral commands. It, It presents it in a new form. Righteousness is based on the law of Moses. We know what righteousness is because the law commands it. But the righteousness of grace... Listen to what I'm saying. The righteousness of grace exceeds the righteousness of the law. It doesn't reduce it. It exceeds the righteousness of the law. And you think, what am I talking about? The righteousness of grace exceeds the righteousness of the law. If you try and live by the law, you will fail. 
But to live by grace is even tougher in some respects. And you think, oh, no, it's not, because grace is permissive. No, it's not. Grace is very demanding, let me tell you. Matthew 5, 20 in the ESV. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Under law, it says don't murder. Under grace, it says don't even get angry. What does that say? The righteousness of grace exceeds the righteousness of law. The law says don't murder. The law, under grace, Jesus said don't even get angry. This is in the Beatitudes. Under law, um, it says don't commit adultery. But what does it say under grace? Don't even think about it. Do you see what I'm saying? It goes beyond what you would define it as, as a rule or regulation. It becomes who you are. It becomes what's in your heart. It becomes a heart own thing. So we take what the law said as an understanding of God's righteousness, but then we extend it and we, we exceed it with grace because, I mean, honestly, we could go on all day long with this. It's just extraordinary. What happened in Acts 2? You know, we'll get to that shortly, but, but um, giving under grace exceeds the tenth of the law. Grace goes farther, it always exceeds the law, which is why when you move under grace, actually, it doesn't become a limitation of a tenth. It becomes everything. It becomes everything. So let me tell you, if you struggle with a tenth, you'll struggle with everything. You'll never get to everything if you struggle with a tenth. It starts with that, and that's where you build it. So is tithing fully biblical? My second key point. 2,500 years before the law, before Moses, in Genesis 4, 3 to 5, it says in the ESV, Actually, before we read it, just take it off screen a second. Who's ever struggled with why God had this problem with Cain and Abel's offerings? You ever wondered about that and chewed over it? I remember years ago, I used to chew over it and think, why was God so unfair about Cain and Abel? Why did he accept one and not accept another? That's pretty harsh. You know, you've got Adam and Eve, then you've got Cain and Abel. This is like first generation. Why was God so harsh? So let's pull up the scriptures and let's try and understand it. It says in Genesis 4, 3 to 5, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. There's, I mean, we could have just taken one of these pieces of scripture this morning and just spent all morning on it. I mean, look at this. If there is... This, for me, is probably where I start to shake myself up because because there's some really profound things going on here. This is not the law. This is first generation after Adam and Eve. This is right at the beginning of time. This This is way before God had to show the law to show what righteousness really was all about. This is right going, going right back. This is the principle of, of who God is. Um, it, says, it says here, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruits of the ground. It's not because God prefers meat to vegetables. Right, that's a bit trivial. That's not what's going on here. Um, there's a big difference. Cain was too random about his offering. Cain was very random. Abel wasn't random. Abel was specific. It says in Hebrews, and we'll look at it later, Hebrews says it was by faith Abel offered what he offered. He saw God and his response to God as a faith decision. Cain didn't. He saw it as just something you do. He saw it as just an activity. How do we know that? Because of what he did. Abel gave both the first and the best. Cain brought neither. 
He just happened in the course of time to collect something and give it to God. Uh, Cain represented, presented a random mix in the course of time. Abel's offering was made in faith, Hebrews 11 verse 4. And what did that lead to? That, that separation of that offering or God's response to that offering was very, very real. It led um, Cain to become extremely angry. It says his face fell, he was dejected. So God didn't accept his offerings. That's why, you know, just giving money, God doesn't always accept it from you just because you give it. This is about heart. It's about heart. God's desire is always to get to your heart. Uh, you know, we've had people tithing into our church in the past who don't even come here. Now, we're going to be gracious and accept. <laughs> but that's not what it's about. It's about having your heart change. It's about being heart with God. It's about him having your heart. And um, 500 years before the law, or just under 500 years before the law, we read about Abraham. And who's Abraham? The father of the covenant of faith. Genesis 14, 17 to 20. After Abraham returned from his victory over um, I can't pronounce that. Kedor Laomer and all his allies. The king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavia. That is the king's valley. And verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the priest of God Most High brought Abraham some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abraham with this blessing. Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most uh, High who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abraham gave Melchizedek, a tenth of all the goods God uh, he had received. This is way before the law. This was a heart response to realising who God most high is and that God was in turn going to bless. And Melchizedek, of course, is how Jesus is related in the New Testament. Melchizedek means justice, king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. That's where we get the word Jerusalem from, city of peace. Um, and Jesus is directly identified with Melchizedek in this time before the law. Um, and we'll, as I say, we'll talk about that a bit later. But it even talks about Abraham being brought some bread and wine. What does that speak of? Speaks of communion. Speaks of Jesus knowing way before the law was even instituted. He's sort of saying here that right at the beginning of time in humanity, the plan was already set. And yet he accepted this tithe from Abraham. So 400 years before the law, in Genesis 28, 22, uh, Jacob gave a tenth. It says in verse 22, and the memorial pillar I've set up will become a place of worshipping God and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. Then, of course, under the law of Moses, Leviticus 27, 30, one tenth of the produce of the land where the grain um, from the fields or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy set apart as holy. God owns, it's what is his, set apart unto God. Holy means that it belongs to God, it's set apart. God owns this part of your produce. It, he, he, that's his, that, that is his. When God gives, um, he blesses. Um, Deuteronomy 26, 1 to 2, when you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession, put some, move to verse 2, put some of the first produce from each crop you harvest into a basket and bring it to the designated place of worship. Two things, first fruit and place of worship. First fruit and place of worship. This isn't keep your own separate little entity and, uh, and choose whichever bit from whatever and whenever you feel like it. This is, what, this is what was going on here in Deuteronomy. The tithe is God's part of our gross income. So when I tithe, 
Um, my first fruit giving back to BCC is gross 10% of what BCC pays me in my salary. Um, and those of you who tithe do the same thing. And that's what we do. We give it to the storehouse. Why? Because we know that God blesses the remainder, the other 90%. Because God's desire is to overwhelmingly bless what you have got and you return to him what is his. That's how the principle of tithing works. It's not to deprive you of 10. It's to multiply the blessing on the 90. It's to, imagine if you multiply 90 by 2. That's 180. Well, that's a lot bigger than the 10 that's missing. And... Um, but it's not really yours to even give. It's actually, the Bible talks about bringing it back to God. You can't give what's not yours. And that's this principle of tithing as well. So what's tith- well, what, let's look at tithing in the New Testament just briefly. And by the way, what we're going to do in a minute, we haven't done our offerings and tithes yet this morning. And many of you, like I do, I, I, we give our tithes by standing order. So every month it comes straight out as soon as it comes in. It's a first fruit. It's a, it's a giving off the top. That's the way I do it and many of you do it. And you know, that's why God is blessing this church as, m- as much as other things. It's not just finance, but finance is a revealer of where our hearts really sit. And those of you who do give regularly, let me just tell you this, that God is looking to bless you massively. Why? Because that's what his word says. He will bless your finances. Those of you who've been faithful and diligent in these areas, God is looking to bless you and, and he is blessing you already. Someone came up to me last week and i don't think they're in this service, and said to me after last week's talk, I didn't mention particularly tithing, I don't think, last week, but came up to me and said, you know, I tithe all the time, and I've, I've just seen it as an amazing thing, um, and I, I've, I've just never lacked, and, uh, and I got given a big bonus from the bank, and, and I wasn't sure what to do with it, because it wasn't on my normal routine, so I, I, I sort of held it back a little bit, and then I felt, you know what, I really should tithe that, and and they said, well, they, they'd heard me talk about tithing on gross because that's the first fruit. Before anybody else touches your finances, let God touch it. Right. Um, and this person said to me, I, I, I didn't go whole hog, but then God spoke to me. Or I felt God, that was the right thing, and I just addressed that, and it's fantastic. And I think that's an incredible, for someone to be able to say that is the most incredible thing. Because it shows where their heart is. And uh, we, we don't broadcast these things, and I hope that person doesn't mind me just mentioning that because it's confidential. But, but that is an amazing place to be. Tithing in the New Testament, well, just referring back to Deuteronomy, it says in, in chapter 14, 23, the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. <laughs> That's the purpose of it. The purpose of tithing is always to put, is for you to learn to put God first in your life. Rick Warren says, if I say, God, I want, to be number one, I want you to be number one in my life, but he's last in my budget, that's a contradiction. <laughs> I like Rick Warren. <laughs> um, Clive Pick says, and I read his recent book, or his book from years back, the tithe is a basic expression of our trust in God. That's all it is. It's not about God taking from you. It's about what you return to him because it's his. And, you know, you may be very new as a believer. I don't want to put you under any pressure. It's a bit like studying for exams or tests. We're bringing this teaching in not to bring any pressure to you because the Lord does put people under pressure, but grace doesn't. And what we want you to know is that, that God is provision blessing for your finances and your whole life when we get God in the right place. And, and we need to address this kind of thing because so much of our heart is, um, is touched by this, sub- this subject. Did Jesus affirm tithing? Well, Matthew 23, 23 says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and the Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, this is Jesus speaking, 
You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. In other words, under grace, he's saying you should tithe, yes, but don't neglect the more important things because grace takes us to another level. It exceeds the law in all these areas. And so we can't allow the legal side of this to bog us down. We need to see what God is really doing. It's never about actually ultimately being tied up with an idea about a tenth. It's about knowing that God's called us. He's paid for us. We have been ransomed and he has paid a, he's paid a price for our lives and he's looking to, to plan to lead us, guide us, and he is doing that and, uh, and to provide everything we need for life and godliness. Jesus said, or rather Jesus didn't say, I have a new command, uh, disregard tithing. He didn't. He didn't say, I've got a new command, I want you to learn. He didn't say that at all. He said, no, you should tithe, yes, but do not ignore the more important things. Why? Because actually in his kingdom, the tenth is not an important thing. <laughs> it is for you, but it's not for him, strangely enough. There are more important things under grace, but in a sense, that tenth reveals heart. Um, you know, it's interesting. Personally, I, I, I was never really taught about tithing when I was a young believer, and we didn't... Churches didn't often teach about it. And as a young believer, you know what I made a decision to do? I thought, you know, if everybody else is going to do it, I'll do it. <laughs> I didn't know why. I didn't, I didn't have a particular perspective. I didn't think, you know, it's, it's a, I didn't know, nobody had taught me about it. But I made the decision to tithe because I saw other believers doing it. And I thought, well, if I'm a believer and that's what they do, that's what I will do. And in a sense, I did it simply out of relationship with the Christians that I was with. Because if we're bringing into the storehouse, I want to be one of those who's bringing in. It wasn't even an argument about whether God blesses it or anything else. It was just, it was just seemed like the right thing to do. And then I learned later that actually there's a whole provision of blessing in your life because of it. And then, and then of course, it says in Hebrews 7 about Melchizedek. And uh, it says, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, verses 1 to 8. We're not going to read all those verses. Just verse 3. There is no record of his father or mother in any or, or any of his ancestors. No beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Do you see what this is saying in Hebrews? Hebrews is making a point of going back to Melchizedek, saying this, I'll read it again, there is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning, or, sounds incredibly like Jesus Christ, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Well, we know, if you're a theologian, you know this subject called theophany. And theophany is the appearance of God in human form throughout Scripture. Old Testament, and how does God appear? And scholars would tell you this reference to Melchizedek is effectively a reference of Jesus Christ himself in the Old Testament. That's what a theologian would tell you. And he accepted that tenth from Abraham. And um, it says in verse 4, Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he'd taken in battle. Why would they bother putting that in the scriptures we have under grace if it was not valid, if it was not relevant? It's relevant. That's why, because it reveals God's righteousness, his holiness, and things that he sets apart. We are set apart to him. The whole of your life is set apart to God. Therefore, he has a commission with your life. Um, you know, every tither I've ever spoken to says, I tithe and I see God's blessing. I've never yet met someone who tithes who has never said to me, I've never said it. I don't think you have either. I've never heard someone who tithes come to me and say, um, you know, there's been anything but God's blessing on their life. That will always be what they say. But I have heard people say, I can't afford to tithe. 
Well, maybe that's because there's other things going on. You know, if you can't afford to tithe, well, I'm not saying put yourself in a financially dangerous or difficult place right this second. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying under God's grace, there's, there's this perspective and position that God, uh, what we have is set apart to God as holy, but it's not just that 10%, it becomes the, the whole of our, our, our walk. Acts 2, 44 and 45, we haven't got a scripture for this, but I can tell you this, the believers understood tithing because they were Jews. In addition, the believers, it says, they met in one place. And what does it say those believers did in Acts 2? It says, they met together in one place and they sold everything and gave to those in need. It exceeded the law. Do you see what we're saying here? This whole exceeding of the law. Then Acts 5, it talks about Ananias and Sapphira. They brought the proceeds of what they sold their house because they were doing it. Grace was working in their lives and they just brought the proceeds, but they lied about it. They lied. They said that they'd given it and in fact they hadn't. And what did God do? Well, they, they dropped dead because they lied about something so significant in their lives. You know, I'm not going to go into that particularly, but it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary how we separate what we want to about God's character and nature because it suits us. And the danger with grace is we make it a a permission to be licensed or licentious in the wrong ways and we just wipe out the things we're not interested in. But God is a God of blessing. Now, we don't buy God's blessing. We just give him our heart. But giving our heart is a practical thing as well as a spiritual and emotional thing. I just want to do a little illustration before we go into worship. We're going to have some worship in just a few minutes. And then we will, we're going to do the offering. Because, you know, today I, I just felt, in fact, I felt, you may not like this, but I felt God saying, you're talking about giving. And, and I want people to feel good about their giving this morning. This isn't, I'm not, we're not asking you to give above and beyond what you do. I'm not. I'm just saying you do what you want to do and we're going to do it as part of our worship. That's why we give. It's part of our worship because we love God first. We love him before everything else. And I know that as we've talked about this topic, you'll want to to give in this worship time towards the back end of the service as your response to him. I'm not asking you to put yourself in... This is not a super normal offering. This is just our normal tithes and offerings. I'm just saying that this morning we're going to celebrate our relationship with God through what we give and make it... Because believe me... If God is talking about this, as we respond financially to him, he absolutely loves it. Why? Because it costs something in our lives to do it. It costs something in our hearts. I want to give a quick illustration. So Tim, would you just stand up just there? Um, Nathan, would you just come along and stand next to him? In fact, stand and face the congregation. And, uh, and Rob, why don't you stand, um, stand just this side of Tim? Right, I want to just show you an illustration. In fact, the band, why don't you join me? Oh, Tim, you're in the band. Oh, Tim, we're in the band. Okay, (laughs) half the band, would you come and join us? We're going to have a great time with God in just a moment. I just want to give you an illustration. I hope we'll we'll stick with you. I want you to imagine, if you will, just for a moment, that I'm, I'm married, which I am, and I've got to go away for quite a few months. And I say to three trusted friends of mine, look, guys, I'm going away for a period of time. And each month, I'm going to give you £1,000. Rob, I'm going to give you £1,000. Tim, I'm going to give you £1,000. And Nathan, I'm going to give you £1,000. But um, at home, I've got a wife, and I've got some kids, and they don't have bank accounts, but I want you to look after that £1,000. And would you just give to them £100 each while I'm away, just to make sure they're okay, because they, they, they're dependent on that. Uh, would you just do that for me? Uh, would, would you agree? Are you happy to do that? You think that's quite a good thing to do? So I'll give you the thousand, but all I want you to do is give 
give 100, just pass that on to my wife, because I care about my wife. And I care about my kids. Okay. So I go away for six months. Actually, it's been a, a big problem. There's airline problems, there were volcanoes. And I come back nine months later, and I say to Rob, hey, Rob, thanks for looking after my finance while I was away, and for caring for my family. Thanks for doing that. And um, did, you, did you give my wife the £100 a month? And your answer is yes. So thank you, Rob, for doing that. Uh, Tim, um, I gave you £1,000 a month. Did you receive it? Uh, now, these guys don't know what I'm going to say next, yeah. but you know what I'm going to say. And I, so, Tim, I was a bit disappointed to find out that, that you didn't give my wife the £100 every month. You did it occasionally, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So, so what did you do those other months, you know? You just spent it on yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but my wife had no way of, of having anything else come in. You took what was mine that I gave to you to give to her. How do you feel about that? <laughs> right, let's just go on to Nathan. <laughs> you didn't give her anything that I gave you. No. You got deep pockets. Got expensive. You couldn't afford to give her what I gave you to give her. Because you had all those other things to pay for. Yeah. Symbols. Yeah. Okay. All right, thank you guys. Just give them a clap. <laughs> now, I'm not, so, these guys are godly guys, right? But do you get the parallel? Do you see the parallel here? The Bible describes Jesus as being the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Everything we've got has been given to us by God. We're only people who carry that and pass it on. And God said, love my bride. You are my bride. And yet we hold back all the things that God has given us. And what do we do? We damage it. We damage it. And um, what does God think about that? I, I don't think he looks happily on his church when we behave in a way that's inappropriate. We certainly wouldn't do it in our own lives. So why would we do it to God's church, to his church, to the church that Jesus is building? We are his bride and he's coming back for us, but yet we do damage to it ourselves. <laughs>